Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's gospel is from the book of Exodus, chapters 19, verse 1 to 6, and 20, verses 1 to 17. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidium, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is below the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents, to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord, your God, for the Lord will not acquit anybody who uses, misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all, and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we listen to these words, to your ancient law, words that even if we're not regular churchgoers have somehow permeated media and art and literature throughout the ages, the Ten Commandments. There's a part of us that feels this is so archaic and so old, we wonder if it has anything to do with us right now. There's a part of us that breaks because we know that we violated these laws in one way or another, and now we are dealing with the fallout. Whether it's broken relationship, broken trust, broken hopes, a broken spirit. We come to this very moment trusting you, eager to hear more, to learn about what it means to live in you fully alive. And we come to this very moment skeptical wondering if we could actually believe these things. Some of us remembering a time you seemed so close and now you seem a million miles away and we're wondering, what happened to you? However we find ourselves right now, help us to see we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us is created in your image and likeness. Beautiful, honorable, dignified, and at the same time, each of us is fractured. We easily wander and lose our way. And in so doing, we lose ourselves. And so we're a beautiful mess, just like this world. And we ask now that you'd help us to see that you know us and see us in all our complexity, all our contradictions, all the ways we get it right and all the ways we don't get it right. And your response is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now we pray that you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed, that our eyes would be opened, that we'd be awakened to your grace and sent out to be your very hands and feet of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For each of my three sons, we had this tradition that the week before they would enter in kindergarten, I would take them camping one-on-one. -on -one. I've mentioned this before. And during this camping trip, there would be a part where I'd teach them how to dry sticks so they could make a proper campfire. I'd teach them how to find and identify nocturnal animals on a night hike using a high-powered flashlight telling the reflection of their eyes coming back from the bushes. I'd teach them how to make a really good campfire meal with just one pot. But at the end of the night, we'd build up the fire as big as we could without getting in trouble with the rangers. And I would pull out a stack of messages that friends and family had written to that particular child as he begins to go into the next stage of the bigger world, kindergarten. And those messages would say, you know, here's one thing I remember about kindergarten. Here's one thing I really love about you, and here's one thing I hope for you this year. And as I would pour that child uh, the soda or juice of their choice, and I would take myself the beverage of my choice, we would go through these messages into the early hours. And you could see this child get bigger and bigger as they go out into the world knowing that they are loved, 
as I reflect on what happened in those days, I'm realizing on one hand there were these survival skills I was teaching, how to make a fire, how to cook a meal, how to stay away from things that can eat you. I was teaching them how to survive. But the later part of the night was teaching them how to live. There's a difference between surviving and living. And God gives the people of God the law, the commandments. God has already rescued them out of slavery. God has already seen to it that they will survive. And now God is teaching them how to live. In fact, the tradition would have been among the people of God that this would have been the instruction that one parent would give to the child, to the next child, throughout every generation. So that they could learn not only to stay alive, but to thrive. The question is, what wisdom guides your life? Are you aware of it? We all have a compass. Are you aware of it? And how is it working for you right now? Now, I realize someone says, oh my gosh, the Ten Commandments, please. Like, how archaic can we get? This is the part I hate about organized religion, where there's this arbitrary dictator-like God who gives these commands that are really difficult to obey and then smashes us when we get it wrong. I hear that. I understand that's been portrayed that way in some circles. And if that's you, I would be skeptical as well. Or someone else is saying, oh gosh, this is the part I hate. This is where God says, like, all the fun stuff you can't do anymore. This is busy work designed to kill our joy. And I would say, if that's all you see when you read the law, then you are missing the big picture. You don't understand them because these come as a pathway to freedom. These are ancient wisdom for modern temptations. I think it's intriguing that in thousands of years and across every culture and language, the same temptations haven't changed. Human nature. Rules that when honored hold us together. Not only individually hold you together as an integrated person, but communally and society hold us together as a connected people. And when ignored or broken, disintegrate us. And so let's take a look at the law, the Ten Commandments. I'll use those interchangeably today. As we see that the law guides us to freedom, the law creates an alternate city within the city. And the law presses you to the only one who can actually save you. First, the law guides us to freedom. In that first part of Exodus 19, verse 1 says, this all takes place after the Israelites had gone out of Egypt. They're already free. And then we get to verse 4 and 5 where God says, I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. Past tense. I bore you on eagle's wings, I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey my voice and keep my command commandments. Do you see what he's saying? Do you notice what comes first and what comes second? God says, I carried you. It's the image of a mother eagle swooping down into a fire to rescue the baby birds and bring them out to safety. What did they do to contribute to their salvation and rescue? Nothing. Their whole job was to receive the rescue of God. So God comes and says, I have rescued you. I have saved you. Now, 
obey. Trust me. Follow me. Listen to me. This is how God speaks. I have completely accepted you. Now obey. Which is very different than the way you or I would say it. And oftentimes organized religion says it, which is the narrative that says, if you just obey, then you'll be accepted. If you just get it right. If, at the end of the day, there's kind of a scale with the good things you've done, the bad things you've done, and if the scale is tipped toward the good things, then you're in. And if not, then you're out. Friends, that will drive you toward anxiety. It will crush you. The good news is it's not true. God says, I have already rescued you. Now, obey. I have carried you. I have saved you. I have accepted you. Not obey and you will be accepted. In other words, God does not give them the law and then deliver them. God delivers them and then gives them the law so they can live free. The purpose of the law cannot be to get God to love you and to bless you and to accept you. It's how to avoid being enslaved. An author named Chris Hedges wrote a semi-funny book called Leaving Moses on the Freeway, The Ten Commandments in America. And he notes about the Ten Commandments. He says, the commandments do not protect us from evil. They protect us from committing evil. The commandments are designed to check our darker impulses, warning us that pandering to impulses can have terrible consequences. If you would enter life, the Gospel of Matthew reads, keep the commandments. The commandments call us to reject and defy powerful forces that can rule our lives and to live instead for others, even if this costs us status and prestige and wealth. The commandments show us how to avoid being enslaved, how to save us from ourselves. They lead us to love the essence of life. So if you find yourself in a position in life where you are experiencing success, and you're hitting home runs, and you're rising in the organization, and you're getting the promotion, and you're getting the accreditation, and you're realizing it's lonely at the top. And now there's no one to hold you accountable. And you've begun to isolate yourself into a small circle of people who only agree with you. The commandments will come and say, my friend, you are eroding yourself. You are building a mansion on a sinkhole. And it will fall. If you are going through a season of life where you're reinventing yourself and you're trying on all sorts of different things and you've realized you've gotten to the point where you are using the city like a playground. You are using people like playthings. You are using your body like a playground and it's dehumanizing you. The commandments will come to you and say, my friend, don't you know how loved you are already? Live in that love. Treat other people with that respect and that love. See, conventional wisdom says true freedom is the absence of any constraints. True freedom means nothing can limit me. I can do anything. But we all know that's not true. True freedom actually comes from the right constraints. If I had a little fish in an aquarium here and I set it free from the water, I'm not really setting it free from the water. I'm killing it because I'm putting it in an environment it's not meant to live in. 
when Jordan and Brian and Chemo play their music up here, they are free on their instruments. But do you know what it takes to get to the point of that kind of freedom? A lot of constraint. A lot of chord progressions, a lot of building up calluses, a lot of I can't go out to dinner that night because I'm working on my music. The right constraints lead to freedom. When you watch a professional sport, when you watch um, the finals tomorrow, if you're watching at the NCAA finals, you're going to see some athlete jump out of the gym and dunk the ball with thunder to an uproarious applause. But do you know what it took to get to that moment? Waking up at 5 a.m. for the last 10 years and going to the gym and working on their game, on their craft. The right constraints lead to freedom. You get the point. And, and the commandments, the law comes and says, these are the right constraints for human freedom to actually flourish. Or as theologian, philosopher, and author G.K. Chesterton said, we can, if we will not be governed by the 10 commandments, we shall be governed by the 10,000 commandments. The right constraints actually lead to freedom. This is the way to freedom. But it's also creating an alternate city. Because commandments guide us to relationships that are built on trust rather than fear. And only through trust can there be love. So those who ignore the commandments diminish the possibility of love. The single force that keeps us connected and whole. So... First, let's think about this. It makes trusting community possible. If you moved into a new home, let's, let's, let's say that that home didn't have a fence and it didn't have a lock on the front door. You moved into this home. If all you knew about your neighbor was that they take the Ten Commandments seriously, you would know a lot about that person. You would know that that person has made a commitment not to tell lies about you. You would know that person has made a commitment not to try to steal your newspaper or your Amazon delivery or your car or your spouse. You would know that that person is committed to not creating violence in the community. You would know a lot about that person. And now there can be trust that can be built as we live into this great vision. It also forms us into a new people with a new identity, a new purpose new direction, new impact. And the, the key is found here in this phrase I want to unpack with you. In that first part that we read, verse 5, you shall be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. That's chapter 19, verse 6. So first, what's a holy nation? Okay, That's a radical new community. That's a city within the city, a new alternate city. And the organizing principle of this new alternate city within the city is completely different. Because the organizing principle of our city is if you are pretty enough or handsome enough, we will love you. If you are successful enough or wealthy enough, we will give you access and include you. If you are well-known enough and popular enough, then you are lovable and worthy. And that will drive you to anxiety, despair. It will dehumanize you. But the organizing principle of the alternate city is God has already loved you. God has already rescued you. God has already saved you. God has already swooped down like an eagle into the fire and scooped you out and rescued you and loves you that much. And now you can go and love others recklessly. The only voice in the universe 
The only verdict that actually matters has already been cast, and it is, you are my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. An entirely different way of living in the city. And that word holy, holy simply means separate, distinct, different. When you live according to this calling, a Christian can say, I am saved by grace. And so you come to the city, not seeking accept, being accepted and approval, not to prove yourself. The way that you're going to live in the city is completely different. And collectively, see, when you do that individually, it transforms your life, makes you more human and more alive. But, but scripture actually gives a bigger vision and says, it's not only about you. It is about you, but it's not only about you. It's about the entire community. You'll become a holy nation of people. Every part of your life, economic, artistic, in your family, in your work, in your health, in all that you do, the way that you handle your money will be utterly different than the way the city handles money. The way you handle your power will be utterly different than the way the city handles power. The way you handle sex will be utterly different than the way the city handles sex. It transforms you from the inside out and then it transforms the world. And note, God's solution to the brokenness of this world is not zapping individual people out of this broken world into heaven. God's solution is to bring the kingdom of God into your life and then create the kingdom of God here. This is what we pray every Sunday. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Of course God is out to renew the whole thing. God created the whole thing. He loves the whole thing. And we get to be a part of it. You will be a holy nation. You'll also be a priestly kingdom. Now that's kind of an awkward statement. A priestly kingdom. What does that mean? Well, let's think about it. What does a priest do? What's the role of a priest? A priest's job is to stand as a mediator between the people and God. The priest's job is to stand as a connection point between the world that has gone off the rails and a God who is renewing all things. To stand in the middle and get people into an experience of the presence of God. So what does it mean that you are a kingdom of priests? It means that when you realize you are rescued and you are on this pathway to freedom, it means that when you realize you're a holy nation, you can't help but be a kingdom of priests, ministers everywhere you go. So everywhere you go, whether it's the farmer's market or the top floor of your, of your, um, of your work building, walking down the street, in your family, in the gym, wherever you go, you become that connection point between heaven and earth. You become that connection point for the people and God. Now, this is a radically high vision. Is your vision of community that high? Because this is the calling that God gives you and me. I'll give you a historic example of how this worked out. We have this document that was found about 500 years ago. It comes from the AD 100s, and, and it's called the Epistle to Diognetus. And in it, the author is trying to describe the way Christians live in society. I won't read the whole thing to you because we'd be here all morning, but listen to this snippet of what it looks like to be a Christian in early Greco-Roman society. The Christians dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. 
as citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They lack in all things and yet abound in everything. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and they repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if they were quickened into life. They are assailed by Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, that Christians are to the world. An entirely new calling altogether. Now, that's a vision of what it looks like to be able to go through life with the storms and the wind and the waves and the confusion and to allow it to crash into you and you still remain resilient and buoyant. When you do that, you are a holy nation, a priestly kingdom. I wonder, is the way you currently view your commitment to community that robust it's a beautiful there's an interesting thing about living in a big city is you can find yourself alone in a city full of people in several weeks we'll have new members join and make commitments right here in this sanctuary and as we do, we're committing, new members make commitments, and the community makes commitments to them. And what we're saying is we will not treat relationships in a throwaway fashion. We will deeply commit to one another. We are in this for the good of each other and the good of this world. Is your vision of community connection that deep? How should that affect the way you use your money, your talents at your work, the power that you have in relationships? If you try to do this alone, you're never going to grow into your potential. And so we gather together, we remind one another of the great calling that God gives us. Which brings me to the final point. Because the law will be a guide to your freedom. It will create an alternate city within the city. But it ultimately presses you to the only one who can actually rescue you. St. Augustine said, the utility of the law is that it convinces us of our weakness and compels us to apply for the medicine of grace which is in Christ. In other words, when you look at the Ten Commandments and say, no one can do all of that all the time, you're in good company and you're right in the right spot. You're in a place of honesty. To which Jesus says, exactly, 
come to me. I'll go further. In Galatians chapter 3, the early church leader, Paul, writing to this church, calls the law a tutor. In fact, the Greek word was pedagogue. It was the, it was the person whose job it was to walk the little kids from the family mansion to the schoolhouse. Their job was to get the kids to the schoolhouse, to the teacher safely, without wandering off and stopping at the taco shop or getting hurt by somebody or ran over by a chariot or whatever. The pedagogue's job was to get them to the teacher safely. And Paul says the law was the pedagogue. The law's job is to walk you along until you met the teacher, but now the teacher's standing in front of you. The law was to teach you about righteousness and justice and living in community and flourishing in life, and now you are looking at the author of life himself. Come to me. And so where does it all lead? After this particular incident, four chapters later in Exodus 24, Moses and Aaron and 70 of the elders approached God on the mountain. And Moses reads all of this to the people, and the people boldly say, we will do all the things that you have commanded. To which I'm sure God was tempted to laugh them off the face of the earth, because we all know they're not. And here's what happens next. Moses did something that would be very awkward to us, but it was very normal back then. He sprinkled them with blood. Okay, hang on here, hear me out. This was a non-literary society. They didn't write up covenants, if I do this and if you do that and we'll meet back here in four days. And they acted them out. And so part of the great drama of this moment was if the people of God do not live up to these things, the blood will be on them. There will be results. There will be consequences. Now whether you want to see that as consequences of God's divine judgment or simply the natural consequences of what happened when we hurt each other, either way, there will be blood. That's what they're enacting. So how could they say, we will do all the things the Lord has spoken? We will fully obey. How could they say that without God laughing them off the mountain? Because nobody obeys fully. And here's the answer. Centuries later, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, will take a cup and say, this is the cup of my blood, which is given for you. For all the ways you have failed the law, for all the ways you have wandered from freedom into slavery, for all the ways you have hurt yourself and hurt others, for all the pain in this world, for all the blood that is on your shoulders, I will take it. I do this for you, so you can live free. Where you failed to obey, Jesus says, I have obeyed fully. And so Jesus will be the one who's executed on a cross outside of town so that you could come in and enjoy the welcome of community. This is the blood of the covenant. And so we have his blessing. His blessing that not only rescues us, but then his blessing that instructs us. And his blessing that forgives us when we get it wrong and lose our way. All of it is surrounded by grace. There's no direction in which you can turn in which you will not be confronted by God's grace. Friends, this is the great invitation, especially as we're walking toward Holy Week now. May we live in the freedom that God gives us. May we live in the committed community together here for the good of the city and of this world. And may we more and more turn to him, the only one that can truly rescue us. Let's pray.
Gracious God, we pray that you would convince us of your great love for us. May your law be something that moves from the background of our lives to the forefront. As it instructs us how to live freely as you've created us. As it builds trust in society and in community. As it ultimately delivers us to you, the only one who can save. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.